Acts chapter 17 is the great account of the Apostle Paul coming to Greece and addressing the the members of the Areopagus. It's a great declaration to us of how the gospel is to be preached to people who have no understanding of it all, who've lived in total paganism, who don't even know the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, so we are looking today at verses 24 and 25. God doesn't live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. When I had my first goldfish, then we got a semi-globe that my father got from somewhere on the railway. It had been used as a, a light fitting. And so we put it in a dish, and the goldfish then, happily for a few years, swam round and round it. And then we built uh, uh, hutches for um, guinea pigs and rabbits and uh, cages for the mice. And then we got chickens. And Dad built a large coop for them with wood out of railway sleepers. And when, in 1946, an estate of prefabricated houses was built in Merthyr, many of the townspeople, and I among them, we went and we walked and we had a look at these prefabricated houses that had gone up so quickly, and they had indoor toilets. What do men build for their gods? Well, they build temples for them with their own hands. In other words, they try to make them as lavish as they could afford, with gold leaf and precious stones and glowing cedar wood and silver statues and uh, ornate furnishing and the temple staff then who are employed there dress up in uh, the most uh, lavish clothes and lead the daily ceremonies, and great sacrifices are made, and special days are held to honor these gods. And the purpose of all that is to persuade the god in whose honor the temple is built to come and presence himself in the shrine that has been built to honor him. The gods identify with their representation. There's a great figure, a great idol at the center, the front of the building. And worshippers are drawn to go there because that pleases the God in whose name the building was erected. And they believe then that their activities and requests would be more acceptable if they make them there than if they do it at home and if they just touch the little doll-sized emblems of those idols, which they keep on a shelf. As they come in and go out, they touch the various idols that are there to get luck for the day ahead. People would make a pilgrimage from a distant part of Greece. They had a certain concern, a sick child, a husband away fighting in a war. And they came with a special gift to the god in the temple. You paid the priest a big fee and then you would be welcomed in the big ceremonies to sit in the big seats at the front. And this is what all these Greek teachers then, the two dozen or so people in the uh, 
Areopagus, that's what they all believed as they listened to Paul in Athens. They were no more sophisticated than people today, the guardians of the shrine at Lourdes, or the priests that work in millions of Asian temples. It's big business. And in Athens, there were hundreds and hundreds of temples and thousands of shrines and altars. We've got the best temples on the planet, they boasted. The finest Grecian skills and craftsmanship had erected them. There was the Parthenon and there was the Temple of Minerva. It was made of Pentelcillian marble with uh, 46 Doric columns and there were sculptures and friezes and when you went inside all the walls were adorned with fine paintings. No expense was paid. And Paul had just arrived from Philippi. He'd come down in a boat And in Philippi then, they were meeting in a house and they were afraid because the neighbors were troubled by what was going on there and there was suspicion about them and they locked the doors at times. They had no buildings at all to meet in, those early Christians, and there he was, organized religion. So evident in Athens And yet, who today knows what those Greeks believed? The people who went to the temples. Nobody worships them today, and yet there are 10 million congregations of believers in every single continent and nation of the world who are simply doing what we do. Around the words of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and listening, and singing his praise, and hearing what the gospel message is. And so here he is on Mars Hill, and he's speaking to these people about the one true and living God. He's told them at the beginning that uh, the God he served made everything. He was Lord of it all. And that was the great positive message that he began his proclamation with. And then he proceeds, and you see he proceeds with one negative statement, one or two negative statements. And then with one great positive affirmation. Why did he need to be negative? Congregations say to the preacher, be positive, pastor, be positive. But in the Garden of Eden then, God spoke to our first parents and said, uh, you can eat from every tree in the Garden of Eden except one. Don't eat from this tree. And when Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Don't pray like the Pharisees on street corners. Don't give like them in such a a splashy way. And when you fast, don't put ash on your face. Don't live like them. In the Ten Commandments, we have two positive ones, but we have eight commandments that say, don't live like that. Don't do these things. We learn from the negatives. It's a balance in Scripture. Don't be drunk with wine. Wherein is excess? but be filled with the Spirit of God. As Tosa says, you have to breathe in the oxygen, but you also have to breathe out the poison. So the first thing that the Apostle says as he speaks to them is, God doesn't live in temples. The Old Testament Christians were made only too aware of this truth. We read an extract from those long chapters in the early part of the first book of Kings, in which the uh, design of the uh, 
of the temple, the blueprint of the temple is uh, handed over and given then to Solomon. And every detail of the color of the walls and the kinds of woods to be used and the fabric and the measurements and the metals and the precious stones, all was followed to the jot and tittle. And then there was this auspicious opening and the dedication of the temple and Solomon kneeled and he lifted up his hands, we're told, to heaven and he said, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And that was a theme then that just goes on from one generation to the other in the Old Covenant. The temple was an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God dwelling in the midst of his people. God dwelling in the lives and hearts of this particular people. Isaiah says at the opening of the last chapter of his prophecy, he says, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? You imagine the universe and the billions of galaxies and the billion, billion suns, and God says, well, that will do to be my throne. I'll just shape it together and I'll sit back on the universe. And the earth, well, it'll be a footstool for my feet. The Jews in Jesus' day were fixated with the temple. It had begun to be built about 70 years earlier by Herod the Great. And they were outraged when Stephen the first martyr quoted that verse I've just quoted to you from Isaiah 66 and condemned them for loving the sign, the prophecy built into that sign of God's dwelling place. And when what that sign signified, the word of God becoming incarnate, Jesus Christ living amongst them, they didn't recognize him and crucified him and loved the sign more than the thing it signified. He's the one who said, destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it. And they thought he was talking about the sign, he was talking about the reality. God templing among us. God in our midst, day by day. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And that was enough. They rose with rage and stoned him to death. Our God can't be confined to temples made by hands. It's like squeezing a whale into a goldfish bowl or as impossible as putting an elephant in a rabbit hutch or keeping an eagle in a chicken coop. God is eternal and infinite. And those two words, infinite and eternal, uh, reflect different aspects of what God is like. Eternity is more about time. Infinity is more about space. When we say God is eternal, we are saying He transcends time. 
And when we say God is infinite, we say God transcends space. So he's not only timeless, but he's endless and boundless and limitless. And because he is without end, God is not measurable. God is not quantifiable. You can't weigh him. And therefore, neither science nor mathematics can account for him. Thou art a sea without a shore, a sun without a sphere. Thy time is now and evermore. Thy place is everywhere. There was a great uh, statement that the early church fathers had when they would talk about the God that they worshipped. And it was a very simple statement uh, which they would invoke whenever discussions on this arose. And it was simply four words. They would say, God is always greater. In other words, they resorted to declaring that no matter how hard you try to fathom and sum up and explain the nature of God's immensity, we always fall short. Our words are inadequate. Our minds, our little finite minds, a brain this size, compared to the infinite magnificence of the living God, God is always greater. And that's the reason why we feel a dagger in our hearts when we hear people shout out Jesus or shout out Yesi or Do, God or Christ. We worship a God so much larger and vaster than the entire universe. A remarkable verse in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10. It's about Jesus Christ and his coming into the world and his ascending to the throne of God. And Paul says this about our Lord. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That's our saviour. That is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He also fills the whole universe. There is nowhere in the world where he is not. There is nowhere in the cosmos where he is not. How immense does that make Christ? You know, you can fit a million earths inside the sun. And the sun happens to be quite a small star. And there are other stars in our galaxy that are 800 times larger than the sun. And the next closest star to us beyond the sun is four light years away. And there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way and 100 billion other galaxies. And it's just mind-boggling. We simply cannot imagine such vastness. But God is bigger We can't comprehend the greatness of God. The incident is told of Augustine, the old old preacher and theologian of North Africa, puzzling over the immensity of God. One day he was walking along the beach and he saw a young boy who was a simpleton carrying a bucket and running back and forth from the tide and pouring water into a hole he dug. And Augustine smiled at him and said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. 
And then Augustine suddenly realized that he'd been trying to put an infinite God into his finite mind. He was trying to fit a whale into a goldfish bowl. Now, if God is that big, how small does that make us? Just tiny specks. You know, you can see at times, can't you, a little reflection of some perspiration, and then you can't see it. God's great hand, and we're tiny specks before God. God's immensity makes us feel tiny. But God's immensity should also make us feel wonderfully loved. We read King David's words in Psalm 8, and we gain an appreciation of the vastness of God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, or set thy glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man? That thou art mindful, your mind is taken up with me on a Monday morning doing the washing. You're mindful of me, a housewife, a little girl waiting for the school bus. You're mindful of me, so vast and so glorious, and the Son of Man that you, that you care for him, that you're a caring God. And then God goes on and speaks to David and he says, You made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So here is the relative worth of a tiny people. We have value because God cares for us. It mattered to God that you came to worship him today. It mattered to God when you said, uh, I'm lost and I need to be found. And God heard those words. God is tender towards us. God draws us to him and brings us into his presence. We have value because of God's love for us. He's made us then. He created us. He redeemed us. He joined us to his son, Jesus Christ. He's clothed us in his righteousness. His purpose that one day we'll be with him in a new heavens and a new earth. And why should he do all this? Why should God home in on us in Amorosweth this morning? Well, that question is earthed in, in his immensity. God cares for us because he is spatially infinite, immeasurable in his distances, in his vastness, but he's also immeasurably affectionate. You can't plumb the depths of his love. You stand on the edge of a precipice and you you can't see the bottom of it. You can't see the height of the mountain. You can't see the east and the west. That's the vastness of the love of God. It takes our breath away. And that love is funneled through Jesus Christ to all who are joined to him by a spider's thread of faith. He loves us in that way. 
He is infinitely gracious, infinitely patient, infinitely forgiving, abundant in mercy, though we abound in sin. He is much more abundant in his kindness. His love is as great as his power and knows neither measure. You can't measure his love. Nor end. You can't say, oh, well, if I fall into that sin again, God's love for me will end. It knows no end. There's a poem I've come across. I don't know who wrote it. Maybe some of you can tell me afterwards. It goes like this. Lord, I said, I want to be your man, not my own. And so to you, I'll give my money, my car, even my home. And smug and content, I relax with a smile and whisper to God, I bet it's been a while since anyone gave you so much, so freely. His answer surprised me. He replied, not really. Not a day has gone by since the beginning of time when someone hasn't offered me meager nickels and dimes, golden altars and crosses, contributions and penance, stone monuments and steeples. But why not repentance? The money, the statues, the cathedrals you've built. Do you really think I need your offerings of guilt? What good is money that's meant only to salve the hurting conscience that so many of you have? Your lips know no prayers. Your eyes know compassion. But you go to church when church going is in fashion. Just give me a tear, a heart ready to mold, and I'll give you forgiveness and a message so bold that a fire will be stirred where there was just death, and your heart will be flamed by my life and my breath. I stuck hands in my pockets and kicked at the dirt. It's tough being corrected. My feelings were hurt. But it was worth the struggle to realize the thought that the cross isn't for sale and Christ's blood can't be bought. How big is your God? They use the friendly God is apparently not very big because those who serve him Feel free to change his word at their discretion and offer him worship that really pleases and entertains them. They live as they please. And they get encouragement from preachers. So to do. Is our God big enough to cause us to want to please him in worship? Is he big enough for us to mortify our stubbornness and our pride? Is he big enough that we mourn for our sins before him? Is he big enough that his will is the great thing? That's what we want to do. We want to do his will. When we discover this is his will, this is a commandment of God, we do it. We pay lip service to the vastness of God, and yet we're not happy people because we've got stuff on our minds. Stuff captivates us. 
and we put our confidence in stuff and God. We have our job and God. We have our husband and God. We have our strong body and God. We have our savings and God. We have our home and God. We have our ambitions for the future and God. And we put God as a plus sign after something else. And our problem is that we've got confidence in stuff and not in our immense God. You're made in the image of God. You're made for God. There's a vacuum, there's an emptiness in you which only God can fill. And as soon as I set my targets on stuff and status and people, something will shrink in my heart. How dare I think that I can make a life in my way and then presume that God will come and God will fill it. That I'll build a temple and God will come. He'll be constrained to come because I built this fine temple for him. And then the next negative, much more briefly, is that the one true God is not served by human hands. Uh, You feel strong and uh, self-sufficient and morally in sync with God and able to serve him and make independent contributions to him and his work. And then you hear some bad news, that God is not served by human hands as if God needed anything. In other words, if this message is true about God, then autonomous, self-sufficient people who think they can negotiate with God are deluding themselves. This is what threatened Paul in his early career and made him hate Christianity. He was an ambitious, religious person. He reached a status in morality beyond all his peers. His whole identity hung on serving God with resolution and strength and rigor and accuracy beyond any one of his contemporaries. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This was his identity. This was his boast. This was his significance. And then he heard a message. And it purported to come from God. And it said, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. We are saved by the crucified hands and feet of the Son of God. All we can do is put our empty hands out to God and ask God to fill them with mercy and grace. And Paul didn't think that was good news when he heard it. It was shattering. His whole life was blown to pieces. What have I worked for? Why all this study of God's law and all this moral striving and this tithing of the mint and the anise and the cumin if God can't be served by my hands? It would be like spending your life pumping iron and eating the right foods to discover that the final content of life is calculus, not physical strength. So the radical Christocentric redemption of Jesus Christ, when he heard it, it didn't come to Paul 
so that he got excited about it. He kicked against it. It was shattering that all his religious achievements were horse manure. It was the worst news he'd ever heard as a self-confident, moral, religious man. But for us, it's the best news. The accomplishment of Jesus Christ. We are saved by what he has done for us. That God is not served by human hands as though he needed everything because he gives and gives. He gives life. He gives breath. That you're all breathing now and that's because God has sustained you and he gives us everything. If you're weak and helpless and sinful and know that any good you do, you need God's help to do it, then that's the best news you ever heard in your life. That God is the kind of God who cannot be served, but our God is the God who serves us. His message to the world, the Christian gospel, is not a help-wanted sign, but a help-available sign. It is not that God needs a boy like you, a girl like you, but you need a God like this. God is not seen then in Scripture as someone that we do things for, build temples for, make expensive sacrifices for, as though God needed anything. But God is the one who gives to people life and breath and everything. We are debtors to him for every beat of our hearts. To those who feel cool and morally self-sufficient, this is the worst news. It threatens to take away every basis for boasting. But to those who are morally desperate and hopeless and lost before a holy and infinitely just and righteous God, this is good news. Maybe a God who doesn't need me would be willing for me to be the one I so greatly need, that I need him. Jesus says it, doesn't he? The one great word of Jesus, Mark ten forty-five. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give. To serve, to give, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is telling us again why he came into the world. This is the essential Christian claim. That he became the son of God and he lived among us. And he didn't come to recruit workers and servants for God. He didn't come like an employer's company scout going to a job fair going to a college to find bright, young, able graduates to help him to keep his company afloat and prosper. That's not why he came. The words of Jesus are crystal clear. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He did not come in need of us. God is not served by human hands as though God needed anything. Neither is his son, the son of man. It's the same point. 
God is not served. Jesus Christ is not served. The Holy Spirit is not served. They don't need anything. He came not because he needed us, but he came because we need him. He came in pity. He came in grace to us. How do we need him? Well, there are hundreds of ways we need him, but he tells us the main way is to give his life a ransom for many. We need to be ransomed, every one of us. And there are no exceptions. What we need most of all is someone who can be our substitute, who can be our advocate with God, someone who can clear our debt with God, someone who can obtain pardon and forgiveness for our sins, someone who will die in our place. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And when a glimpse of honesty lightens our lives for a moment, then we know we've offended God. We've neglected God very seriously. He's not been first in our lives. He hasn't been second. He's not been third or fourth in our lives. He's been and also ran. And we haven't cared. And that's the great offense. And we're in no position to serve him. To impress on him this morning. Well, we're here. Lord, we're here. We give him money in the collection, Lord. And we're here. And we've got our abilities. We're not thinking about doing God a favor by being good. We're rebels at the root. And God is not our loved and honored and trusted and treasured king. We're captive to sin. We serve sin. Sin is the Lord of our lives and tells us what to do. And that's why our greatest need is not for health. It's not wealth. It's not marriage repair. It's not a job. It's not our greatest need. Obedient kids... Our greatest need is someone to die in our place. Our greatest need is that somebody die instead of us. To ransom us from the penalty and power of sin. To escape God's judgment and enter eternal life. Son of man came not to be served didn't come to say put up a great temple and dress up and do rituals and come and get grace he came to give to give his life a ransom for many he's the very one we need above all the other needs that you brought to this meeting today this is your greatest need he sent his only son to pay the price that we could never pay an infinite price a measureless price think of it the billions of people through history. More than the sands and the seashore. What, what price must be paid for their redemption? Whatever it was, he paid it to the last penny. Only the Son of God could do that because he is infinite and immeasurable. 
So the incredibly good news today is that God is so great and so self-sufficient that he can't be served as though he needed anything. And his son Jesus Christ is so great and so valuable that his death on our behalf is the all-sufficient answer to the worst things that we've done, the smallest, the meanest, the dirtiest things that we've done, all find an answer in God's judgment by what Jesus did on Golgotha's cross. It cleared all our debt to God. Less is insufficient, more is unnecessary. The blood and righteousness of Christ is everything. We're confronted with this. Will you, will you believe it? Will you believe what I'm saying is truth, the most important truth that you'll ever hear in your life? And will you receive God serving you? Not you serving God and serving you by giving his precious son as a gift to you. Believing upon him. Receiving him into your life. Not serving him with your hands. Not doing stuff for God for the rest of your days. It's the fruit of Jesus giving his life as our ransom. Making us right with God. That's what brings us to God. God sees right through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. It's there before him. And there you are. And he sees you in Christ, joined to Christ, through Christ. And you get peace and pardon and hope and eternal life through Jesus Christ only. Through the way he has served you by giving his life for you. So then what is the Christian life? What does it mean to be a Christian? How can you live as a Christian? It doesn't mean becoming a Baptist or becoming an Anglican or doing an Alpha course or doing any labels that then you can say, I'm a Christian because of that. Labels don't make anybody Christians. They never have. They never will. But being a Christian means when you get up in the morning, you say in your heart, Jesus, you're my saviour. You're my king. You're my friend. You're my treasure. You're my hope. You're my joy. You're my guide. You're my protection. You're my wisdom. You're my advocate. You're my strength. You are all I need. More than all in you I find. I love you. I trust you to be with me for today. I know you've given me muscles and you've given me a heart and you've given me a brain and a will. I know you intend for me to use them all in doing things that are just and good and loving and kind and sweet and patient. Yes, you show me that without you I'm a rebel. My mind is darkened and my muscles obey the rebel will and the darkened mind. And so I need you. I need you today. Or I'll be obeying the flesh. Work for me today. Not because I deserve it, but because you paid my ransom. Serve me today. Subdue my will today. So I love what you love and find joy in doing your will. And bring light to my mind. So that I think true things. 
whatsoever things are noble and, and good. Infinitely valuable things. That you serve me by making these things my things. Coming to God each day is just like that. It means you've seen it. You've seen salvation is through the service of Christ. And not by you serving him. But salvation is by grace that's greater than all the corruption and failure and guilt of the past. The good news today is not that God says he'll keep you from death and suffering. He doesn't promise that. That God is alive and gives us what we want. He, He doesn't. The good news is that God works for those who wait for him, who wait upon him. He forgives all our sins. He removes all our guilt. He takes away all our condemnation through the death of Jesus. And in the place of our weakness and shame, God makes himself to be our servant, our good shepherd, who provides for us and leads us and guides us. He gives us everything we richly need every day of our lives. His goodness and mercy follow us. He works all things for our good. The hardest things, the toughest things, the most unmanageable and unwanted things, they touch us, he'll work them for our good. He serves us, he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And in the end, he'll he'll be there with our last breaths. He'll be doing the countdown. 19, 18 breaths, 17 breaths, 5 breaths, 3 breaths, 2 breaths, 1 breath. All over. All over. And then him. Him. This Jesus. This Jesus who served us and kept us. And then, to be absent from the body is to be present with him. With him forever. That's, that's what heaven is. He'll serve us in his infinite self-sufficiency and immeasurable omnipotence tied to measureless love. He will serve us right to the end. And when we walk through the valley, he'll serve us in the valley too. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray. Help us to realize the folly of thinking, well, I've done this for God. I've been good. I've given things to God. 
Oh, deliver us from every atom of such pride. And to thank thee for the tons of kindnesses and loving gifts and patience and strength and hope and comfort that we've had from you so faithfully all our lives. Oh, we thank you that you're not going to find a building like this or the St. Peter's Rome or Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's or any building that men make. Oh, mighty, massively glorious, infinitely patient and loving, saving God. Thank you for showing us a little glimpse again of who you are. Oh, that our souls could love and praise you more. Expand our minds, warm our cold hearts. Bless us with better lives of profitable service in the future. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.